Welcome back to Rap Drinks, your favorite podcast brought to you by Shitty Rigs. And we are here today with Chris Ingbertson, who is a friend and a person that I work with on set all the time. And when I first met Chris, uh, I was living in the Catskills and I needed to uh, crew up a commercial. And I was like, oh, I'll have to invite all these people from New York City to come up to the Catskills. That's so sad. They'll have to stay in a cute Airbnb. But Chris was like, no, you don't. There's so many people in the film industry up here. And I was like, no, they're not. And he was like, yes, there are. And then we started working together and the the crew in the Catskills is amazing and like really top-notch people that we really love and we really, really love to work with. And I don't know, we just work together all the time now. And Chris has done literally every job you could possibly imagine. This is not, this is not an episode of Rap Drinks where you're like, like Bob the key grip or like, you know, Sarah, the DP. This is Chris Ingerson. Like, what the hell? What do you do? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> <laughs> Who can answer that question? Well, I don't know. <laughs> on that note, welcome, Chris. Thank, Thank you. you for being on the podcast. Great Cheers. to have you. Cheers. Cheers. What do you do? <laughs> uh, I guess currently producing uh-huh. a true. show with you that you're directing. That is true. Um, directed 27 features of my own industrials, commercials, docs, stuff going way back to the 80s. Um, But I started as a key grip, learned every job. I've been a shooter. I've been a gaffer. Um, Currently, also, I work in the industry, believe it or not, as an armorer on bigger stuff and as a stunt coordinator. So these are skill sets that I always had doing all my action movies, but now I'm like, hmm, I actually could do that. So, you know, it's one of the things I do. So how, how do you transition from one job to another? You just got to hustle, like all of us. Yeah. Just whatever comes up. So So you said that you started off as a key grip? Yes. What was that process like? Like, did you, did you start, did you go to film school? Did you just say, F this, I'm just getting right into film? Uh, it was it was actually serendipity because I went to a college that didn't have a film school, so I had really no background in it. Although we did start our own college cable station, so I sort of learned production that way. And I also PA'd when I was in college on uh, sports programs, so I did you know like college football for ABC Sports and stuff like that. So I kind of had a PA background. Mm-hmm. Um, graduated from college. I'm from New York City. Came back and I ran into a high school buddy whose uncle had just done a film called Rocky. So I started PAing for John Avildsen. So I just sort of, like, just by happenstance, got into the business, mostly PAing. And then, you know, started working crew jobs and, you know, stuff like that. And through a friend who was putting together uh, the crew for a Larry Cohen movie called The Stuff, which is a great movie if you guys haven't seen it. It's a fabulous movie. You know, my friend Daryl Green is like, Okay, you're going to be the key grip. This guy's going to be the gaffer. So we showed up in Kingston, New York, and it was, I went from, you know, kind of gripping to being the key grip on a movie. So it was like sink or swim. So How, was that, how did you feel? How was the moment? Were you terrified? I really wasn't terrified because the crew was all guys like me, sort of up-and-comers. I mean, Larry Cohen was, was an indie legend, and he was, even at the time in the 80s, was making million, two million dollar movies, but the crew was all sort of up and coming New York City young people like that. So, and the DP was a guy named Paul Glickman, who was just the coolest, 
old school camera dude. And he was like, ah, you don't know what you're doing, but that's cool. And Larry <laughs> Cohen, you know, he just, he just wanted loyal crew guys that could do anything. He didn't care. So I sort of transitioned into it. I mean, my first day on set, I had to do like a eight rail dolly move. I'm like, well, how can I do? I'm like, well, I guess level it. So, you know, learn you by knew, doing. You just Junior, knew to yeah. level it? You were just like, I guess we got to level this thing. You'd never yeah. seen it before. I mean, I'd seen that, you know, dolly track and right. whatever, but I never, it was never like the focus on me doing it. But, you know, within a day or two, we were rocking and rolling. So that's crazy. That's yeah. different than nowadays. I feel like if someone can't do a job and they, they go, yeah, I'm going to do it. They'll just go on YouTube or like figure out how it's done. Yeah. Back then you don't have YouTube. Uh, so no. true. Yeah, you didn't have cell phones, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have anything, yeah. So how sure. are you, like, you just learning this from watching other people? Or no, you but just... I, had, I had other friends on it. So I had a crew, and my, my buddy was the gaffer and whatever. So, you know, there was a support system there. Wow. But, yeah, no, that was the first day, you know, in Kingston, New York, doing, like, a super long dolly move. But it was straight, at least. So. <laughs> Thank God. But, you know, and not I mean, downhill. Uh, you know, I, I, I love gripping because, it, it, to me, the funnest job on set. It's so creative. Um, you really have to figure out stuff all the time, rigging, rigs, things like that. So, I mean, it's very intuitive. You're pushing a dolly, and you want it to be level. So, you know, just yeah. figure it out. It's interesting you say it's intuitive. What makes you say that it's intuitive? Do you feel like you have a knack for something like this? Do you see, like, did you grow up watching movies and felt like that make, like, what about it felt intuitive to you? Well, so gripping felt intuitive because it's really just about, you know, physics. So if you have mechanical aptitude and, you know, I grew up, like, fixing cars and building little things. And, you know, so that was intuitive about it. But I also grew up, um, you know, in the 70s and early 80s, just loving movies. So I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, downtown Brooklyn, seeing every, every movie that came out in the 70s, which was just a golden age for movies. Mm. So, you know, always wanted to be in film, had no idea coming out of college how I would do that and sort of got it an opportunity to do it and just went for it. So, yeah. And, you know, Larry Cohen movies. So. When you became a Larry loyal crew guy, you know, within three or four days, I'm, you know, B-cam operator, and I'm helping the <laughs> stunt guys, and we're rigging, you know, I'm helping the effects guys. It was just, they were bigger movies, but it was kind of that feeling, if you could do it, you know, you could, you would do it. So mm. that's how I, what? that's how I learned, and that became sort of the basis for my entire career, just learn everything and, you know... Don't be afraid to do anything. I feel like that's still your your like mode of operation is because you you're doing a film right now that's like the most indie film of all time. Yeah, so. it's like so beyond indie. You're like every department. Yeah, <laughs> and like you like it that way. Like, why do you like it that way? Well, it's it's interesting. So you know, I worked. Uh, I've done twenty seven movies of my own. I probably produce six or seven more for other people, and I've worked on probably another 20 features. But the lane that I like is kind of that indie lane. Yeah. Um, and I work, like I said, as an armorer and a stunt coordinator on big TV stuff, and that is so stratified, and everybody's, like, so serious, and only the, this department can do that. And, you know, it's completely different from the indie experience. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I just, I kind of like that lane. So yeah, I did a, a World War II um, horror movie, which we're just finishing post on called Huntress. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a Jeep full of medics and nurses that get caught behind enemy lines and they, they're looking for some gas when their Jeep runs out of gas and they see this German chateau and it, you know, it's a family of cannibals that have, are like existing by cannibalizing, you know, downed American flyers. So it's, what? yeah. And it's, you know, at this point, um, I work with my partner, Matthew Howe, who we've done like 16 movies together. He shoots, I direct, we both produce, we both write, and it's just more fun to kind of do everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, wow. and the, you know, the indie world now is, is, is in like everything in a state of flux. So you better do it fairly cheaply and you better know how to do everything. And now, you know, you got to, it's like having an A team of a small amount of people. And that's, that's what I like doing. You mentioned on your website, Cinema Sciences, you should check it out, cinemasciences.com. But you said that Larry Cohen taught me the art of the sneak. Right. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? So Larry Cohen was, was famous um, for, you know, so, and God told me he, he did an entire sequence with all his principal actors in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Oh, wait, the name of the movie is God Told Me. Yeah. Sorry, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> God, God, told, God told me that he was... <laughs> you didn't see Sorry. the bush he brought in here? <laughs> like, he carries it with him. I was like, oh, it's going to be this kind of podcast. Okay. <laughs> and that's like the classic Larry Cohen movie. But so suddenly he's got all his principal actors and, you know, handheld cameramen in the middle of the St. Patrick's Day Parade. No permits, no nothing. And it's just an incredible electric experience. And even Q, his, you know, the famous winged monster movie, he's shooting in the Chrysler building. You know, he sort of had permission, but he didn't have permission to shoot machine guns up there. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's, let's slow that one down a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Wait, what? Chrysler <laughs> building and machine guns? Yeah, so he's, you know, so he's, they're shooting down um, Q, Quetzalcoatl, the winged serpent that lives in the top of the Chrysler building. And this is a famous, famous horror movie, so you should all see it. And so they're shooting blanks up there, and it's the top of the Chrysler building, which is fine. They're blanks, but the shell casings are, like, falling on the street, you know, 90 floors below, and people are calling the cops and whatever. And it's just... <laughs> and so, of course, it takes a long time for the cops to get up there, so they're just keep shooting, keep shooting, keep shooting. And that's happened to me so many fucking times. Can we oh, I love, like, the cops. Oh, no, you can no, curse you can't fucking you curse. Please, Chris. Please don't fucking curse. <laughs> Fucking shit together for once in your life. That's another thing on every film shoot. That's every other word, people. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Fuck, yeah. 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 For good reasons and bad. No, yeah. but like, the, I love the image of like the cops running up, like <laughs> going up one elevator, and you guys, as soon as like dings, your elevator starts going down with all your machine guns. Like, like what literally, the hell? keep shooting, keep shooting. <laughs> so it just, that made so much sense to me. It became second nature because. You know, you're not really hurting anyone when you're doing your film, you know. And so getting permits in New York um, in the 80s, yeah, you could do it. But, you know, it, so I did a film called Blue Vengeance, which was just restored by Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar I think, Syndrome. I think you, everybody would enjoy that. And that's, you know, we have, a, we have a foot chase through the subway system. Yeah, no, that's just a sound guy, the, you know, me chasing a guy and the cameraman. 
no permits, no nothing. Now, we were smart enough not to have like a fake gun, but we're still chasing people. And it's New York in the 80s, so like the people are a little freaked out, but not that much. It's, you know, it's, it was pretty much a commonplace occurrence. And then we have a, a chase and fight scene across the Brooklyn Bridge. And you probably could have permitted that, but the insurance and the rigmarole and the you know, locking the street off and, the, you know, getting the cops to do that. And, of course, once you're actually on the, you get a film permit in New York, the Teamsters are looking at that and, you know, like, oh, well, we're going to go down. You know, back then it was very hardcore. So you really had to sneak around. So that just became, we figured we would just always do that. Why would you, would you say that a little, elaborate a little bit about the Teamster thing? That it was a little, well, my team, if you can. We well, might have to my, beat my, it all out. My Teamster <laughs> brothers, who I, there's a local here that we all love, were very hardcore back in the day trying to shut down indie films. So, and back in the day, we would shoot on something called film, everybody. And you would have <laughs> to that? rent film cameras from, you know, one of the rental houses and, you know, we'd be like, okay, well, give you a deal, but you got to show up after five because, you know, when the teams are left. So it was like, it was sort of a struggle and sort of kind of fun to sneak around like that. That'd be a fun movie. And that would be, that's a fun movie idea, actually. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> it's like a gangster movie, heist movie or yeah. something, but really you're just a film crew trying to avoid the Teamsters. <laughs> 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 and the Teamsters are all like these huge Italian dudes <laughs> with like semis. <laughs> Well, you know, they did have ways of, of uh, sometimes they were, they were, you know, kind of brutal, but usually they would just go to film sets with like, air horns and stuff like that and reflectors and things like that. So there were, there are a lot of ways to disrupt a, a, a film set. Why, why did wow. they feel the need to, I guess, disrupt films at that Be- point? Because at that point, in, indie films couldn't afford a Teamster. Yeah. Or, or, you know, there are multiple Teamsters like you have on bigger sets now. You just couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. So, like, I can get, back in the day, you could get a PA for 50 bucks to drive a van, or you could get a Teamster for for $1,500 to. So, what are you going to do? Oh, so yeah, you're kind of, in a way, um, taking them out of a job. Right. So, but, you know, hopefully that's all been worked out. My brother's the Teamsters. So, yeah, but, you know, back then, you know, the the struggle was real back in the day. You're shooting on film, you're dealing with Teamsters and things like that. And then the bureaucracy of the city, you would have to have the film cops, you know, on anything that you were on the street. So if you just wanted to shoot something, why not go out and shoot it? And if a cop showed up, you would say what you always said. Oh, it's just a student film. Yeah, and as you get older and older, you get the PA to see the, like, <laughs> go talk to the cop, go go go. Oh, all the time. Yeah, like the yeah. youngest looking dude you would send out there. It's like, yeah, I'm in the NYU and we're doing a student film, and invariably it'd be like, okay, that's cool. It's that's, a student is that, film is that about my is? grandpa. Yeah, is that what it is when you're hiring them? Can you just read this for me? Like, uh, it's a student film and. <laughs> Uh, you're hired. Yeah, and they're like, perfect. And, you're, and they're always set? into it, too. I mean, because yeah. you're, yeah. just, you're just trying to make your movie. Yeah. You know? yeah. Is, that, there... is that part of the, uh, I guess, the excitement for you in making movies is like that, that I don't know, that component of like breaking the rules, of like going against the norm? That's an excellent question. I think that's definitely part of it. Okay. And, I, you know, it's, it's, it's creativity in a production sense, where you have creativity and, you know, in the artistic sense, you really have to 
when you're making your film, um, you really got to, this, this is your shot. You've got to do whatever it takes, which is the famous Spike Lee quote, but that's so true, whatever it takes mm. to do your film. That's also the Shitty Rigs mantra. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, kind whatever of, it yeah. whatever it takes. To get the shot. That's yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. No, but it, it's really true. And that's, yeah. I mean, I think there was a, a bit of, I think we did sort of enjoy breaking the rules. Was really. there any like repercussions for stuff like that? Did the, like if you saw like that shot of the machine gun on the Christ building, did the New York City reach out and be like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, I wasn't on that film, but that's the classic um, yeah. Larry Cohen story. But yeah, yes and no. I mean, it was a lot. Honestly, pre-9-11, the city was so much easier to shoot in. There was a lot less tension, a lot less police surveillance and, you know, breaking balls and stuff like that. You could pretty much do stuff like that. Now it's a lot tougher. You know? Yes, it's harder to get away with something like that. Yeah. But, I mean, Pretty all the indie films did that, and we just maybe pushed it a little to the extreme. Yeah, did you ever get caught or in trouble for any of those things? Well, on Blue Vengeance, on the on the subway thing, we did actually have a transit cop come up. To, you know, so we were kept hopping on trains. We started <laughs> Canal Street, and we'd go up, and then we'd come back, and 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 so finally, a, a really burly, mean transit cop comes up. To, what the fuck are you guys doing? We're like, it's still him. Like, he's not buying it at all. It's like, where's your permit? And John Wiener, who was um, the writer and the co-producer and also the the co-star in it with me. See, everyone has five jobs. Walk, walks, up, walks up to him and, 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 he, and I'm like, we didn't deal with this. And he's, the guy goes, who told you you could shoot here? And the most brilliant thing I've ever heard in my life, he just said, Kenneth. <laughs> Swear. <laughs> and the dude who's like a sergeant or something goes, Oh, okay, Kenneth said that. All right. I left us alone. Swear what? to God. It's all he said is Kenneth. What the fuck are the odds that you could just come up with a name and be like, Oh, thank God, Kenneth? Well, John Wiener, who just finished a film in L.A. and That's is a writer, really director, and, and one of the, the people that was one of my best collaborators in the early days. That's just, you know, he just was brilliant like that. The guy wanted to hear something, so he said it. He had probably had the confidence in, in that delivery, too, ah, of yeah. Just yeah. Kenneth. Yeah. Kenneth. You, you haven't talked to Kenneth? <laughs> What are you doing here? <laughs> we also had what we call the COV, which is the cloak of vagueness. So someone is is just so mad at you, like, when are you guys going to be done? Don't give them an actual answer. Just say something amorphous, like, just one more scene, almost almost done. They just want to hear something, yeah. like you're being respectful and that you're actually answering them. Cloak of vagueness always works, especially on movies. The cloak, cloak of, of vagueness. vagueness. It's, like a Harry, <laughs> it's like a Harry Potter. Like, the invisibility cloak, but. But everybody in film quite. knows it. They just don't know it by that they, name. Yeah, there's no time. Yeah. You have to wow. say something. And and they the guy, you know, they don't, they're not specifying is it earth time or film time? Because earth time is 10 minutes, film time is like 60 minutes. Yeah. So, you know. One more scene is so vague. Yeah. 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 Only so, one more scene? Only yeah. one? Great. And it always works. Wow, I'm like, okay, here? cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, two lines in the script is, and yeah. war begins. <laughs> That's yeah, what exactly. we see. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like for me, at least in my experience, communication is always the thing that really kind of keeps things on set very calm. Like yeah. as long as you're yeah. going back and forth with someone like, say, listen, yeah. I know we said 20 minutes. Right. We're 30. Just like, here's where we are. Here's the problem. And just keeping them in the loop yes. really yeah. keeps things like kind of in the pocket because people just yeah. feel like, hey, you're at least responding to me. You're recognizing that there was something there's something I gave you in exchange right. for what you're doing now, and yeah. you're reciprocating that by just talking to me right now. And I feel like a lot of that just, I don't know. That, that is so right on. That is 100% correct. Because, and that's what we always called like regular guy skills, which is like you're not the auteur, you know, film student kid making you, you just talk to people like people. Yeah. You know, like, dude, we're totally going over, but, you know, just... Give us, yeah, and everybody respects that. Just be mm -hmm. a regular guy about it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do that for uh, your film Airbus? When Airbus. You Airbus, sorry, excuse me. Airbus, Airbus. is a different movie. Airbus. <laughs> Airbus. <laughs> Airbus. Um, can you clarify which Airbus? Airbus you know, is, uh, Airbus is a ripoff of Airplane. <laughs> <laughs> but for uh, Airbus, did you use that when you sweet talked your way on a Navy ship? Is that what it was? So, Airbus um, was a film that we did we actually did four of them airbus <laughs> one through four but the sequel names are are, are, are gold yeah let's hear <laughs> airbus airbus two preemptive strike mm -hmm. airbus three echo warrior and airbus uh what was airbus four? i even forget i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i just love so but the much reason like we did it, i did a sci-fi movie called absolute aggression and we did and it's like a virtual reality time travel thing and we did this sequence where we did like a, a mock jet fighter scene like a top gun so people are in injection seats and we're shooting and stuff like and the foreign buyers um at one of the film markets, loved it so much. We're like, we should do an actual like Top Gun movie. So we did it with uh, radio controlled jets, we, it, which is we went down to Florida, which is like the world capital of guys with radio controlled jets, and we're filming like dogfights. Wait, they, how big are they? They're bigger than this. They're actually the size of these things put together. Wow! And wow. they have jet engines, and they cost like twenty grand and. If the guys crash them, which they did several times, you'd like grown men crying. But yeah. they're incredible. But anyway, so we're like, we need to get on an aircraft carrier. So we just met the Navy public affairs officer in the city who was this retired captain. And he like dug us. So we got on an aircraft carrier for Air Boss <laughs> One. And that the only other film that had ever done it was Top Gun with you know, what? Back in, back in the day was probably a $30 million budget. Now God knows what it was. And we're like this scrappy little film. But we go down to Norfolk, Virginia, and we put like a small crew together, like five people, and we go on an aircraft carrier, you know, sailing out towards Europe where they're doing flight ops. I love that. So the, when on, and you were being total regular guys, bring a box of cigars because Navy guys love that shit. And they assign you like a public affairs officer who was this lieutenant commander. And we just had him running in circles. And finally, he's like, just gave up. He couldn't mind us anymore. <laughs> so <Say> whatever. <laughs> we're doing like incredible stuff. I'm like in a flight suit because I play one of the guys. And I'm like walking up in planes in the middle of like the Atlantic while shit is landing and stuff. And like going up the ladder. <laughs> and, oh, wait, the, a chopper just landed. We could maybe use that as sequence. So I go in and then hop out. And we're just filming everything. 
No one saying anything. You're like, oh, these guys are just hopping on like a multi-million no, dollar because crash. Because everybody figures you had permission because you're there. No, no. Right, if you, you get caught, it. it's just a student film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, they're not going to hear Alan, so... Alan just said... The voice well, of God just no, he said... he comes in. He comes into the he comes in. Oh, he does? Yeah. yeah. Oh, perfect. But the weird thing is, that was one aircraft carrier, and they loved us. So we got on three other ones and a nuclear sub. What? <laughs> so we go in the nuclear sub, and we had just been commissioned out of Groton, Connecticut. And so it's not going far. It's, you know, it dives and whatever. And there were, like, congressmen on and stuff like that. And once again, you know, I'm in kind of a Navy thing, and I'm, like, at the periscope. And this fucking admiral goes, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, oh, nothing. <laughs> So, uh, I've never seen this before. It's so cool. It's in the movie. So. Oh my god! But be a regular guy. Yeah, regular and guy stuff. Yeah. It's regular guy stuff on a yeah. nuclear sub. You yeah. know, just nothing. Just yeah, this is great. Because I mean, the people on those submarines probably genuinely wanted to show you around. They oh, wanted totally. like to. They're like, hey, you ever seen one of these? But, and, like, and they're stuck with us for like the whole day. So yeah. they ended up like taping little post-it notes over like the stuff we weren't supposed to see. Like yeah. God knows what it was. And yeah. so the and nuclear codes. And we're like, can we come over to the console? And they're like, wait, wait a minute. And then like half the stuff is blacked out. Yeah. But they didn't stop us. Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious. Getting a, getting a shot like that today would take yeah. forever and they'll tell you no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean it depends. I, it's like to his point, it's I guess how you approach someone, right? Like yeah. if you if you're yeah. willing to compromise, if you're like, hey, listen, like I have this idea how much permission can you give me to do mm. this? Like, right, I have this vision. They're like, well, how I can many give you this. cigars do exactly. you need? Exactly. It's all, you casually go, I got these cigars. You want a cigar while I talk to you about this idea? And they're like, hey, oh, cool. I like a cigar. But also, what's your movie about? And you're like, hey, like, don't worry about that. Yeah. Let's, let's talk more about these cigars. Look of Agnes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's on the that's on a shirt. I know. But the Coca Vegas works because we actually shot in Airbus Two, as you know. It's a space shuttle movie, so we got permission to shoot at Kennedy Space Center. Insane. We, what? So we said, and and you know, we you had to like send a proposal. So we said we're Danish TV <laughs> doing a documentary, and like the next thing we know, this is all pre nine eleven. We're at Kennedy Space Center, and we did shoot a shuttle launch, and then after that, we're like. Oh, let's just walk into that building and let's go to you know, and I'm I'm the bad guy in that, so I'm in like a suit and then, you know, and just and they loved us so much. NASA gave us footage because they've shot you know billions of feet of all the launches, and it was kind of hazy the day the launch went up, so they just gave us their perfect you know thirty five millimeter film. Wow. Because it's wow. your tax dollars at work. <laughs> like, you work for me, all right? Give this footage. Yeah. This had to do a simple, like, FOIA request, and they sent us cans of dupe negative. What? Wow. Oh, yeah. Do you still have it? Of course you still have it. Of course I have it. It's my barn. Yeah, of course. It's a, everything's in Chris's barn. I mean, I think part of that is also probably, like, the interest you take on subject matter. Because, like, yes, uh, like when sure. Mike and I worked on a job for, like, um, Facebook and now this years ago there was a there was an episode where we have to go work with um, uh, archaeologists mm. out in the middle of nowhere in Montana 
And like we got connected through various channels and then, you know, they were like skeptical about us working with them. We went out there. We were like with them in like a government regulated area that you needed specific permits to shoot in. And by the end of it, they were like, hey, I've got all this awesome drone footage. You guys want drone footage for your show? And we were like, yeah, absolutely. You have drone footage? And they just like sent us a Google Drive of all this stuff. He was just open and willing to like give us all this content without us asking for it. And it was like he just saw what we were trying to do and he just wanted to be involved in some Mm -hmm. way. And like classic. Regular guy skills. Yeah, Just exactly. be a real person. Yeah. 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 No pretentious, arty, anything. Just be a real person. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It That's great advice. Way. Even yeah. that applies to today. Like in everything sure. you do. And it doesn't it doesn't even have to be production. Yeah. yeah. Just whatever you're trying to do, just be a, a real person. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. For real. And that's that's harder than you would it's easier to say than actually imply for people. Yeah. Right. Because you they'll just like the minute you talk to someone, you know they're after something, you're like all right, what's up? And then that person's guard goes up and the whole dynamic changes of the relationship. Well, you know who's great at that? Corey. <laughs> Wait, which, or, p- which part? <laughs> and, 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 All and, of it. And relating to people and getting people to do, you know, whatever you need for the show. Like doing a podcast. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know. That's how you're here. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable around people who aren't regular people. I, like, don't know what to do. I, like, yeah, implode. Yeah. I'm like, why do you think you're so special and more important than me? Like, I don't understand. You're not. We're all the same. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like regular people, yeah. I'm, I'm down. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's why we vibe. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever had to deal with like celebrities in, in any of your mm. films? Like, and, and just work around that? How do you deal with that ego? I've been very, very lucky. Um, yeah. No, I've been, I've been incredibly. There have been a few bad apples, but I mean, I'm so... My second film, we cast Sandra Bullock in. Okay. Um, this was my film, Hangman. And she had just graduated from college and was out there, like, auditioning. And she was so amazing. She was, like, at rap, she'd be loading the grip truck. You know, we, we had the <laughs> rap party at her, at her apartment. So I've been very lucky with people like that. I've worked with um, Robert Mitchum, you know, at the <laughs> end of his career, Telly Savalas, and... I've been very lucky never really having a diva mm. on set. Shelly Winters was a bit of a diva, but... <laughs> but she earned it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, you know, so it's it, it kind of depends. But generally speaking, uh, the name talent I've worked with were pretty cool. And I guess it's it kind of reciprocal. It's like you, you set the vibe you're a producer or director so you know maybe it's luck or maybe it's just the way you run a set but you really can't have someone be an asshole to your crew or to other actors or just you know be a diva so yeah Yeah. i'm curious about um your experience as an armor like i like i have no idea as someone who's worked in the industry as long as i have like how do you even go about that route to take like that kind of i guess path to get into the industry, like, what's it like being an armor, and like, what would you say were the, the things that you needed in terms of your experience to get to that position? That's an excellent question. And once again, I sort of just happened into the armoring. I had done, um, and I've only kind of done the freelance armoring for six or seven years, but I had done so many action films that I was always kind of the armor. Mm. And probably my oldest friend in the in the film business is a guy named Rick Washburn, who started Specialists, which is pretty close to here. 
um, which is the biggest East Coast uh, prop weapons uh, prop house around. So they're amazing. Yeah, they blow up a lot of shit. You, you, they're you, so fun to work. You mentioned with. them on on your yeah, episode. Yeah, you gotta get them on Jenny Rags. And we got them. Okay, he's gonna have them. But anyway, so Rick, you know, we kind of started out together, and he was. Uh, there were no armorers per se in New York City, so he was the first one. And now it's a, it's it's the biggest on the East Coast. So they they have the inventory of prop weapons, and then they also you know send armorers out. And, you know, an armorer is something that was kind of necessary in the film industry because it used to be the prop department. So, like, your prop master would do it. Mm. But it's such an important thing, obviously, yeah. for safety. Yeah. You have to have a totally dedicated person doing that, mm-hmm. even if it's just a small gag. But then, you know, on a big movie, you have to have someone totally doing that. So, I mean, it's, you know, these are the aspects of what you do. Number one safety for the the actors using it and and the crew so that's your number one thing but you may also depending on the level of production you're on you may actually be gaffing that gunfight or even the stunt aspects of that you may you, your dp or your director or your ad may have never done a gunfight so you're literally kind of you know gaffing in the old school hollywood sense you're you're coordinating the action of that and often you're also training the actors to to look like they know what they're doing. So I've worked with, I've had, you know, I've been on set where I was like, you have to train this actress to be like Emily Blunt and Sicario. Okay, you've got 10 minutes. I'm like, I'll give it a shot. You know, <laughs> I mean, so, and you do what you can. Is that person an FBI person or is that person never picked up a gun but has to defend her family or whatever? So it's all different. Are you... An amateur, or are you an FBI agent or whatever? So there's a real training aspect, hmm. and you know it was super fun before the Rust tragedy. And now it's 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 almost an, a non-issue now. It's like really there is very little armoring and more like babysitting, you know, like rubber guns and stuff like that. It'll it'll come back, obviously, but yeah. Um, it was a really challenging and fun and very important, a um, lot of responsibility. But if you're the kind of person that kind of likes that, um, it, it you know it was it's a really fun thing to do. So I guess um, specialists uses a lot of people that had prior military service or law enforcement, or also just people that learned the trade um, you know at their shop here in in Ridgewood. Um, I just always had that skill set. Because I was doing it on my own movies for years and years and years. And that's the same with stunt coordinating, which is basically the same, the same parameters I've mentioned, which is obviously safety, mm-hmm. cast and crew, and often dealing with uh, creative people that haven't really done that before. So you're really kind of coordinating the whole thing. So it's really fun. And yeah. what, do you, what would you, um, what would it, someone that's in the armor, armory? charge or if you're a stunt coordinator like what is a good rate that you would want to look for starting off well it depends if if you're so generally speaking um a stunt coordinator you're in sag so there there's a sag rate depending on what tier it is um and there are you know there are definitely uh non-union stunt coordinators and maybe that's people coming up in the industry um but the, uh, the rate sag rate right now and Obviously, the negotiating, I think, is uh, 
$1,080 for whatever, for a day, eight-hour day or something like that. An armorer is also, is also a union position. It's in IA, uh, IATSE 52 um, on the union level. So that's also, you know, based on an hourly, which is basically commensurate with what a prop master gets because mm -hmm. the armor is part of the prop department. I see. So yeah. I'm I'm actually not in in IA, but I'm always permitted on because I do some stuff in the Hudson Valley, but I you know I sometimes work on on non-union, but mostly on the union stuff for TV shows and stuff like that. Although after the Rust tragedy, that has really slowed down. Yeah. And yeah. of course now we're in, in strike territory, so nothing's going on. Mm. Yeah, you were you were gonna go shoot that thing with um, Paul Giamatti like a week after the Rust. Tragedy happened, if I remember correctly. Right. So I, I worked, yeah, I worked on Billions um, right after the Rust tragedy. And so they, they had a, a scene with, you know, Paul Giamatti and, and Rob Morrow and the whole crew um, skeet shooting. And they were shooting up at this beautiful resort in, in the Adirondacks. So they had to, they were skeet shooting, but then all live fire was completely tamped down. So we had to fake it with CG, but they also had, they had to sell that they were skeet shooting. So I, I took them to a range and showed them how to do it and whatever. So it was kind of babysitting guns, but that was a little more on the training level, just to have these, these four corporate execs, or what I guess he plays a, a prosecutor, look like they've been doing it for years, and they were proficient at it. Right. And it and it's it's actually tough to get people to fake gunfire, which is the problem with yeah. not having actual, you know, firing blanks anymore. Let me ask you this then, as someone who works as a producer often, and you as a person who works in, you know, a stunts or as an armor, how would you prefer that a producer approach you to say for the project? Like, would you prefer that they said, hey, I'm trying to do this thing, what would you recommend? Or would you prefer them to say, hey, I have this thing, I need you on for this day. Just make it work. Like what? I, obviously, there's probably one that you prefer. Like, yeah. and, and what's the advantage of having the one that you prefer? Well, so generally in this business, um, it's it, everybody's like a day late and a dollar short. It's always hurry, 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 and you're like, you know, here's ten dollars. <laughs> it's like we got to do this, and and you know, you, you as an armor, you're kind of sent by specialists. So you may show up on set, and then that's what you got to do. Um, the billions things I worked on, you know, I, I zoomed with, uh, you know, the director and the prop master and all that. We really had to figure out how to do that. And they also didn't really understand that it wasn't skeet shooting that was needed because like the rich dudes don't skeet shoot. They do sporting clays, okay. which I used to shoot competitively. So that's why I got the job from specialists. So I had to explain actually how to do the set and all that. So, yeah. you know, but that's part of your job. You're just, you're just, you're there to serve the production. And you're, if you're, you know, a prop person, which is an armor, then you're there to help your prop master. But in that case, your boss. they were like, they relied on your expertise to make, make it seem real. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. <laughs> right? and, no, and because it's it like nothing looks hoopier than like someone faking a gunshot. Yeah. yeah. You can throw the flash in. You can do that in two seconds. But if, if they're not selling the recoil, then it's yeah. stupid. But even from a safety standpoint, if a director comes up to you and says, I have this idea, you probably step in and go, wait, well, we probably shouldn't do it that way, right? Like right. we well, probably, okay. I would recommend. So, so th that's 
Another excellent question. So, you're full of excellent questions. Damn, John. Is that with THC? The way to do that diplomatically, and this is to everyone watching this, whatever your position is, like, okay, we can't do that, but why don't we do this? Why don't you, you just you, you, you be very positive? And, you know, it's not about your ego. You're there to serve the production. It's, you, you, you don't want to say, that's the stupidest thing ever. You can't do that. That's unsafe. Just steer it in a positive direction. Okay, we can't have the guy shooting like this close, but why don't we try this? Let's, how about doing this? And that's the way to do it diplomatically. Mm -hmm. And that's a life skill too, and definitely a skill on film sets. Yeah. As you know, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. I feel yeah. like I feel like that's because <laughs> like Chris and I work with a DP very frequently who's very like kind of old school DP, yeah. really good, mm -hmm. amazing, love, adore this DP, but he's he's like you know, yeah, you know. stuck in his ways, very, very yeah, like, type A and very <laughs> yeah manic. Yeah. He's the boss, you know, and uh, and sometimes Chris, they've known each other forever, and sometimes Chris and this DP will I'll hear them. I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. And Chris is always the one going, okay, we could try it that way, but why don't we try this? <laughs> I'm so <laughs> diplomatic about it. What? And I'm like taking notes. I'm like, right, 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 okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could blast that through the window, or we could just put our stereo tubes here and get the shot, because yeah. we're like, you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, diplomacy definitely gets you a long way yeah. in production, for sure. But it, yeah. yeah, I feel like... Your patience probably gets tested pretty regularly, too. Well, because it's, yeah, and on bigger stuff where there's a lot of serious egos there, mm. someone's, when it comes to safety, someone's got to be the adult in the room. Mm. Yeah. So let's say the, the crafts that deal with safety obviously are stunts, armoring, special effects when it comes to actual gags, whether it's squibs or blowing stuff up. Or, so you, you really... Yeah, you can supersede someone like giving you a direct order to do something if you know that's dangerous. And you have to have enough confidence and enough stature in the business to say, no, we actually can't do that. So armoring would be firing blanks too close. Um, in the special effects, physical special effects, it would be someone too close to an explosion or something like that. And stunts, you know, obviously, you no, know, we'll have to throw the punch this way or we'll have to, you know, you have to... Sometimes you have to really put your foot down. Yeah. And on bigger stuff, you know, maybe people don't want to hear, but you have to do it. Make it safe. Oh, yeah. Make it safe. Yeah. We we do have an audience um, that ranges in, in experience on our um, that follow us. So can you just explain what a squib is? So a squib is um, is a small explosive, usually um, put against the skin. Let's say I'm getting a bullet coming through here. Um, you'll put a pad, you'll put this explosive, and then you'll have a blood pack mm -hmm. or, you know, a dust pack or something, you know, like a, a hit on this. But they're actual explosions, so you have to be very, very careful with them. And you have to, you have to rehearse and sequence it, like, really, really professionally. So that's what a squib is. And that's, yeah, there are, there are pneumatic squibs now, which are very hoopy. You know, they will spray the wall. I mean, if, they, if that's what you're going for. But Tarantino. if you want a professional-looking squib, you got to get a professional uh, effects person that does it. Mm -hmm. But it is an explosion, so you have to be very careful. It's not huge, but it's, you know, you, you have to pad and explain to the actor what's going to happen. And 
they have to sell it often with, on, let's say you've got a wide shot, which will have a gun firing. Mm-hmm. That has to happen instantaneously, and the actor has got to sell the reaction. So it's really a lot of rehearsal. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wow. For like one second. You know? Like one second, yeah. Yeah, but you, but like, how how many times have you watched a movie where they did it badly and you're like, oh god, that's embarrassing. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, yeah. it's like it can be so campy. There's like that YouTube video going around the guy, who, the, some extra gets killed on set, and he like. Ah! and then like <laughs> falls over and like rolls and like comes back up and sticks his feet in the air and, like, and it's like no one's paying attention to the movie anymore they're all paying attention to this extra in the background who took like 20 minutes to dramatically die via breakdance and that was like, their, <laughs> their one take for sure yeah. right because it was yeah. a, definitely a low budget film and oh, yeah. they didn't have enough money God. to do it again and it's like I love you so much but like you're, you're not, you don't want to do that in a serious film. You know? Definitely yeah. not. Sounds I'm, like some of my earlier films. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm curious about, since you've been in the industry so long, like something like a squib sounds yeah. like pretty sophisticated. Like it, it's not something that was invented probably pretty immediately. Like it took years of trial and error to get something to be. So what have you seen yeah. in terms of technology from someone who's worked in like special effects or as an armor? Like what has been like something that started as a shitty rig and maybe evolved into something more practical? <laughs> well, well, okay. So here's a perfect example example how technology marches on you used to have to hardwire those okay. it's wireless now which is so much better for actor oh. movement framing you know following you know panning a shot stuff like that it used to be hardwired and often you would have the actor if they were good enough would have a little trigger so it you know be wired down there and they had it like in their pocket or something like that but now it's wireless which is great because then the actor isn't anticipating it and you have the spontaneity of that, which is, it's split second, but that makes the difference Mm -hmm. between a shot selling or not. So, I mean, that's a a great example. And, you know, you can, I'm such an advocate for actual physical effects. Um, Physical stunts, physical blood hits, actual gunfire with blanks, because automatic pistol, you got the flame. Yes, you can put that in. You can paint that in. But you have the casing, you know, and you've got the slide moving in. Like, you can't do that in CG. Or at least yeah. you can't do it in affordable CG. Yeah. yeah. You've also got, like, the relationship with the actor and the weapon. So yes. there is a reaction from that person that's yeah. on camera. Exactly. Right. That's more genuine. And, of course, there's less recoil, if you know, minimal with, with a squib, with a blank. But it's still telling the actor they're they're reacting to that mm-hmm. you know so you're not you know pretending something's happening yeah you're not like ah and i think that'll come back know, because there's good. there's no way to do that other than like physically now you could do a lot with cg and that, you know the average person can totally do it on their laptop but does it look good probably not not unless you have yeah. a big budget for cgi it's like it's yeah. like um Every every animal on set, like any um, exotic animal or inda- yeah. like a bear or a wolf yeah. or something, yeah. Yeah. like I was just watching Reservoir uh, Reservoir Reservation Dogs, best show ever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wolf in it, and it's just like that is obviously a fake. Like it's so obvious it's a fake yeah. wolf, yeah. right? You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. and that's okay. That's what they have to work with, but like yeah. it's just not there. Yeah, it just isn't. Like when you got the husky dog, that you were sent wolves. <laughs> so I, I did a commercial um, where we needed wolves. 
So we called an animal agency, and we got the most adorable huskies. And they're like, all right, the huskies. And they're like, well, we're going to put them in makeup. So streaks and tips, like a case of streaks. And they did a pretty good job. Stand back. They were, they were these, like, and huskies are, and I've had to, they're the most affectionate dogs ever. They, they've been bred for thousands of years to be with people. But it's like streaks and tipped husky. Yeah. That, you know, you get what you okay. uh, yeah, you want to go there, you got. But like, yeah. at the same time, it's like, I'll take it. Because yeah. I don't want a wolf to have to live uh-huh. on a film set. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't think you want to yeah. die for the purpose of a film. No, but I, 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 I more free. don't, I'm, yeah, I don't want a wolf to suffer, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, That's I'll true. have, I will fully accept your CGI bear. Yeah. Fully accept. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want you to have to take a bear yeah. out of yeah. the forest so, to, yeah. to make that, a On that commercial. note, I'm curious, do you feel like there's anything that's happening now in the industry that you feel like it used to be done? It used to feel more natural. Do you feel like there's the opposite of that where it's like, I wish we were still doing it this way as opposed to how we're doing it now? Well, I'll, okay. What that makes me think of is, is so back in the day, we were all shooting on film, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which I don't miss. Believe me, because the labs in New York were so horrible and it was so expensive. And, not, you know, we owned a 35 millimeter camera. We always shot in 35, but that was half your budget, no matter how low budget you were. But the one thing I do miss about film is the discipline. It was so expensive. Mm. You had quick slates and now cameras roll. And even on the show we're doing, it's like, yeah, cameras rolling. Both cameras are rolling. And the DP is like, yeah, change that light. And, 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 and people are talking. And, and I'm like, you're rolling. And an hour, and, and a minute goes by, and, you're st- um, and I'm always the guy going, uh, we're rolling. And but, I'm, I'm going, Chris, please make him stop. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's meaningless now. Yeah. But when that, you literally could hear the cha-ching going through that film mag. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. that discipline, sets were a little more disciplined with that, but that, Kind of the only thing I, I miss about uh, film. <laughs> uh, I'm only going to bring this up because you said cha-ching, but when we got our, our first uh, like expensive camera, we bought like a red camera. Um, I think it was like the uh, the helium mic. Um, <laughs> Mike changed Mike? Mike changed the sound on the camera instead of it just going like you could you hit record and it would just record, but he was able to add a sound into the camera. So whenever you hit record, you'd hear the dollar signs like ching ching I took that on a job once and I did it and I forgot that it was on and the client was like what was that I was like oh that means money's burning so we should go and he was like oh okay <laughs> smart yeah. way to say it yeah. great that's great that that's awesome yeah. Yeah. yeah we uh David and I watched Tar the film you know mm-hmm. say what you will about Tar yeah um the there's there's all these scenes where she's driving around in her Porsche mm-hmm. electric vehicle, but it's mm-hmm. making noise. Mm-hmm. And David was losing his shit. He's like, "That's an electric vehicle. Why is he fucking making noise? That's so stupid." And like he couldn't watch the rest of the film because, <laughs> yeah. like every scene, he'd be yeah. like, "I just don't understand. It's an electric vehicle. Why did they?" Have <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "You need to calm down." And then and then like three days later. Like the, I, in my mind, it was like the middle of the night. He was like, wake up. <laughs> it wasn't. It was probably lunch. But he's like, I just looked it up. Apparently, if you buy the new Porsche electric vehicle, it comes programmed with different sounds of different Porsches of <laughs> different <laughs> eras. So you can, you can, it's just playing like well, the of sound of a, of a like 1973 
Por- I don't know any Porsches. Yeah. Porsche. Now he's like, now Whatever. we can watch the rest of this movie. Like, okay, no, okay, I get it. Yeah, I can get past <laughs> it now. All right, like, let's go back. Yeah. The middle yeah. of the freaking night. God. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I was like, Jesus Christ. Wow. That's great. Yeah. It's great, David. I mean, it's a typical uh, crazy day story. Yeah. One of the best things about being Chris's neighbor and um, knowing that Chris very much appreciates practical effects is that if you if you need something, Chris probably has it. Like, I need a World War II Jeep. It's in Chris's barn. But sometimes um, when Chris is working on a cannibal World War II movie and you don't know that that's happening and you go into Chris's barn, <laughs> you find, <laughs> like, dismembered corpses. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really, mm-hmm. like, yeah. I forget what it was. We had gear stored in in Roz's house. Yeah, we had we had camera for the our TV yeah, show. Yeah, and I was like, I'm gonna go pick up some stuff. He's like, Yeah, just go ahead in. and I like walk in and I get it. And I look to my right and I see like something's weird. And I was like, There's a hanging on a meat hook. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he had like built yeah. the set for the cannibal like butcher shop in the back behind where our equipment was. And I I looked in and I was like, What the fuck and then i walked in and it's like human corpses and a torso and like knives and like Meat grinder texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> all like hyper realistic and i was like yeah. chris if someone walked in here and they didn't know what you were doing yeah, do you have like, neighbors <laughs> <laughs> just the one <laughs> and he's dead now yeah. <laughs> chris now did you bring a special guest with you today i did you did? Yes, this is Uh-oh. this is Sergeant Murphy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's pull the chair for Sergeant Murphy. No, just let's bring get, it, just no, bring no, it right no, in. No, no. In the uh, beginning of the second act, he meets his demise. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Oh, Sergeant Murphy. Yes. We hardly knew let's, you. Let's put him towards your camera over here. Yeah, you know what? Actually, what I would do is, how about this? I'm going to hold him for a second okay. while you talk about him. And okay. then that way we have a cut between your shot and then me and holding this cadaver. <laughs> this this member torso is uh, has been in a lot of my films. I don't know if the camera can see it. Can He's basically see? a friend now. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> T- tell us about Sergeant here. Oh. So um, w- basically one of the plot points is our heroine, um, one of the few people who survives, is, is looking for Sergeant Murphy. And her uh, her coworker nurse, and she fi- she comes into this butcher kitchen, and suddenly she sees this, and the clue is that he's in his airborne uniform. Uh. So he's a little dry now, but the way you make something like this extra gross is the moist, the moist, and everybody uses KY, so you get that ectoplasm look. <laughs> Nice. And then you throw the blood over that, and it's incredibly realistic if you know if you light it correctly. Yeah. And and does something like this, John, make you think Welcher's fruit snacks that you started? Oh, eating? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. You immediately like, started eating. Yeah. Like, oh, this makes me hungry. <laughs> Man, I saw the red, and I was like, gummies. Cam- cannibal? Did someone say cannibal? So yeah. now you made this? No, this is this is an off-the-shelf. Uh, Prop, I got God knows. There used to be a store on like 23rd Street called the Halloween Shop or something like yeah. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Halloween Adventure. Or and they had, it, they had it for years. I have no idea who, who molded this, but it, it's really cool looking. Yeah, it's pretty legit. When it's like when it's glossy and but and it didn't lit, come right? with a jacket. You went and picked out the yeah. jacket. Yeah. So this is this is the double of the Murphy jacket. This is the one that we like 
you know, turned into the corpse jacket, but that's a World War II airborne jacket. Cover yourself up, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so let's put him on display. Him on the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very sticky, so. That's Sergeant. <laughs> Sergeant. At ease. <laughs> yeah, he's at ease all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the morning I went to go get gear. I like, look over yeah, and, no, and it was in its glossy state. It was like, yeah. oh, it yeah. was like, it was like in the middle. Yeah. You were like on a day off of yeah. shooting the film. And I was like, Jesus Christ. If I was like, like, if I was like a young PA on How's our that? shoot. <laughs> yeah. Like sent you sent me over to get the thing like. Oh but I was God. like, "Whoa, you know." Yeah. And, and then, uh, oh, and then and then and then uh, I needed a four by four, and I was like, "Fuck, I gotta go to the lumber yard and get a four by four. And Chris was like, "No, you don't. Go to the barn. I've got like shitloads of wood. Just go grab a four by four. I was like, "Oh, cool, thanks." And I drive <laughs> over, walk into the barn, look for wood, find a four by four, pull it out, and it as I was pulling it out, it's a, a head. No, a leg. Head. A leg <laughs> fell out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. That's Chris. <laughs> no, there's Chris, that's a great cover-up for what you really do. Yeah, yeah just find body parts. They're all yeah. props. They're all made of foam. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, mm. I, so I've worked with a lot of really great makeup effects guys. I, I just uh, produced a film for Larry Fessenden, Blackout, which was a werewolf movie. So I work with Peter Gerner and Brian Spears, and those guys are, are just top of their game. So, uh, you know, for my movie, I'm getting off-the-shelf stuff. So there's there's a place that's great called New Rule Effects New Rule. In, um, in Burbank. And so you can, you know, you need a severed leg. It's a pretty well-cast severed leg. They're not cheap. I also cheap, get really good breakaway glass from them. Like, they can make oh, yeah. anything out of breakaway glass. Literally the best place to get it. It's so fun. Mm. Yeah. Um, that so that's a plug for them. But, yeah, so this is off-the-shelf, but... Uh, depending on your budget or if you really need a werewolf transition, you really have to get a, a pro, like Brian Spears yeah. or Peter Gerner or whatever yeah. that Larry Fessenden uses. But, you know, if you're very good at – see, I'm, I'm pretty confident I can shoot something in a way that I can make it look good because I just have the DPI. So, you know, low light, a little angle, a little KY and blood and – you know. And then you have a hot date night. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different kind of movie. I don't know. <laughs> just regular, just regular guy talk, you know? Just regular guy stuff. Good job, Mike. <laughs> I mean, Thanks. I know I know we do this in a lot of episodes and I'm I'm generally curious, um, what would you what would your advice be to someone that's trying to break into the industry who's interested in like you know, special effects or armory work or any of the, like, just the general kind of departments that are available to us. What would you say to someone that's looking to come into the industry now? Well, I'd say just do it. I mean, if that's your passion, just do it. And if your passion is to make films, just do it. I'm, I'm, you'll never hear me be a naysayer. Mm. You just have to make your own career. You have to make your own destiny. Um, yeah, you're going to have to start as a PA or as a, you know, as a, you know, like an additional on set or whatever, but just learn your craft, um, be professional, learn the two most important words in this business when you're starting out. Someone asks you to do something really hard or pain in the ass, what do you say? No problem. No problem. No problem. And do it and get through that shoot and meet people. That's your network. That's your film family. And people go, yeah, that, that was a solid kid. That kid was, yeah, 
Yeah, kid was all right, and you'll get hired again. Be the guy that says no problem. So you, I think of all our guests, has the, have the most experience. And I think everybody else kept saying don't. So it's good to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel for these guys. Yeah. As they go further down, yeah. go, baby go like, yeah, this is great. This is great. But also, I'm going to play yeah. devil's advocate here. Is there ever a situation where someone asks you to do something and you don't say no problem to you? I mean, you play mm. the diplomatic role, but has there ever been a situation where you say no? Well, yeah. I mean, if it cannot be done budget-wise, you're, you know, you have to be honest. You have to say no. If, mm-hmm. You know, you may have another solution, but except to Corey, you can say no. To Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that look. I saw that side eye. I, I was actually thinking about the Spice Girls movie Spice World. <laughs> All right. because it's random. <laughs> I know, but it is. It is, and it isn't. I just remember it for some fucking. I don't know why I remember this. I re, I forget like really important things in my life, but for some reason I remember see, being dragged to see the Spice World movie with some people. Like people were like, "Let's get drunk and see the Spice World movie." <laughs> and I was like, "All right." All right. And we went, and they have a shot where they're all in their tour bus, and the tour bus is supposed to jump. Up from a drawbridge. The drawbridge is going up, and the Spice Girls bus is supposed to jump to the other side. And they literally say in the movie, they like they somehow say like, "Yeah, well, we can't afford that stunt." So, and then it cuts to like a really shitty like um, a toy car, toy bus. It's just one shot, and I just remember laughing so fucking hard. Like, they didn't, like, try to CGI it. They didn't try to make it look real. Like, somebody was like, you can't afford it. And they were like, well, we can afford a toy bus. (laughs) And so monofilament. And I just remember being like... Yes, best movie ever made. <laughs> so, Chris, that's actually a really good point. So, yes, there, there are times where you say no problem. There are times where you just say we can't because of the budget. Where are the creative times in between that where you go, we don't have the budget, but now it's time to start getting into that shitty rig zone? Well, the shitty rig zone, which is why I love what you guys are doing, is when you don't have money, but you have creativity. You You're able to be resourceful and nimble and think your way out of it when you don't have money to throw at it, which is why I like the kind of the indie lane, because you never have enough time, you never have enough money. And that's probably every movie, even huge movies, but you definitely on indie films do not have money. So you've got to find a way to do it. And you're, you're, everybody on set is a creative person or they wouldn't be in this crazy business. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Ask for ideas. Figure out a way to do it. I'm, I, when I started out, I loved the Evil Dead films, and I loved the camera creativity of that. And, and then when I saw a little BTS of that, they're like, you know, they're running through the woods with like two by fours as their, as their dolly. And, you know, it's like, we can do that. So you, you can figure out a way to do anything. But I, I love using camera and photography to do that. But they're, you know, it's the it's like the shitty rigs credo. Be resourceful, you know. Adapt to what the yeah. problem is. If you don't have the money, that's what you have to do. And you know that. You're great at that. The other thing that I, I learned very early on is forget the reality of this room. The camera lens sees this. So whatever's in that frame is all you have to do. Mm-hmm. So absolute yeah. aggression, we're... we're how the hell are we going to get do a jet fighter cockpit? And there was a prop house in New York, like down by the river, and they had a cockpit. It was like $4,000 to rent it. 
I'm like, fuck, what are we going to do? And I'm like, the mag liner that we, we haul our camera gear on, it's aluminum, it's tubular, it looks like it could be in a jet. You know, we've got the helmet and the flight suit, and the camera saw that and was like, that's fucking perfect. No one blinked an eye. We just totally made a mag liner into an ejection seat. And, <laughs> and with a little shaky cam, and you got a jet fighter sequence. So, wow. But oh my that, God. But that's what you got to do. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, ask, ask your crew. Your crew are all creative, artistic people. Someone's yeah. going to have an answer to it. Yeah, but that's also an in- a really good perspective that you mentioned is, like, what the lens sees. Yeah, like, right, how much can we get away with what the yeah. camera is looking at right now? Because exactly. a lot of people are thinking about everything behind it. But in reality, it's like... How much can we actually, how totally. big of a lie can we tell right now? Yep, right? Yep, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Which, which is why, and you know, as an art person, is like the set, it's just whatever part of the set has mm-hmm. to exist for that shot, and then it can fall down. Yeah. But like if, if it's going to work for that, it, you're not building a house, you're building a part of a house. And then mm-hmm. as if you get the take you need and it, all collapses doesn't matter yeah it's a movie that was that was probably my first experience on an indie film as a pa like i remember like having this whole glamorous perception of like hollywood and filmmaking and then one day we were shooting in like an apartment in the lower east side and the camera was set a certain at like a certain place and we were doing all the things and then like we hit record and I turn around and I look at like all the crew is like hiding in the kitchen like this. <laughs> <laughs> because that was where it, that was the room available for all the crew to totally. make the shot happen. I was like, oh, so that's, that's the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's you know, It didn't click until that moment, yeah. you know, because that's yeah. I think people have this like glamorous idea yeah. of filmmaking, which I don't think it exists necessarily for everything. Yeah. But. Most of it is just like, like you said, being in the trenches and like figuring out creatively how to make it happen. Right. And if yeah. you're, if your exposure to the film industry is like, oh, they're shooting on my block and there's like 30, you know, Winnebago's and trucks and all that. And you think that's it, but it's not. It's like, it could be two people talking or at a phone booth or something. And that's mm-hmm. maybe don't need all those trappings. You just need, you know, camera, sound, art and whatever. And that's it. That's what the lens sees, that's all that matters. Thanks for including art in there. Appreciate yeah. you. Well, it, I love art, and <laughs> I, I pretty much production design my own, all my films, and, you know, have art people and art director like Scott Hill, who we love. Oh, yeah. Um, but you're kind of, I always thought that was part of my job, is, like, yeah. figuring out what the design is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of different positions you've been in. What would you say if someone said to you, said, all right, Chris, you can only do one position for the rest of your life? What would it be? Probably directing, but God, I miss I miss key gripping. I just my back can't take it anymore. But I just <laughs> love that. I I, lo- I really at heart I'm a grip. You know, I just am. And I'm you know so we're doing this network show now, and guess who's fucking hanging stuff with you know like Fernie <laughs> clamps and whatever you know. This guy right here. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering who. Yeah. Yeah. Just for those of you who didn't catch the reference, it's it's yeah. him. It's yeah. him. So I, I can. Yeah, that was those days were so much fun. Um, but yeah, I'm just obviously being a filmmaker in general, making movies. I just it's so fulfilling, and it's hard, and it's it you know it takes a year or whatever, but it's very satisfying having that. 
you know, having a screening with your movie. And mm. there, there are flaws and shit you could have done better and there's hoopy stuff. But, you know, it's, it's really fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just is, you know. It's, so that's kind of the path I took. So. so Larry Cohen movies, speaking to, you know, to crew here, we would have like 24-hour days. You know, we, I think we got OT out to Whoa, 12 or something. What? Like pe- back in the day, we just like, I'm not going to say we were more hardcore, but we were, we were into <laughs> it. And so you would, you would like, oh, we're going to do a three week movie and it ended up being like five weeks. And like, where'd my life go? Cause you, with turnaround, you're, you know, it became like two and a half days and you know, it's just. Larry's a good it, talker. He's like, yeah, hey, right? you want to come work on this project now? So the reason, the re- I loved him because I learned so much for, uh, about being a passionate director from him. The production of his movies were, were always a nightmare. He always got, like, the worst producers, the worst production <laughs> man. They didn't have to go that long. It's like, yeah, no one... No one wants to like for sure. work your crew. Yeah, but it would be like, oh, we're doing three locations. Well, they're like two hours away. It was just, <laughs> it was nightmares. <laughs> but Larry never lost his temper. He was always funny. He he was so passionate about stuff. So I was the key grip, but I would I would always be the dolly grip too because I like being right in the, on the action. Mm-hmm. So back in the day with film cameras, your AC was not in a little tent in Video Village. They were on the dolly. They were actually pulling focus. And so you'd have your DP or operator in your... And so I'm like, you know, pushing dolly. And Larry would be like, Hitting me, go faster! He was, he was like, he felt the rhythm of the scene, and the DP would be like, "Slow down, you fucking asshole! What are you doing?" So <laughs> and, like, ah. and, and Larry's like punching me, and you know, he was so into it. A lot of times, he would he would like, he would have an idea for his score or his soundtrack, and he'd be like humming it, and he was just so focused and so passionate. I'm like, wow, that is, I want to be that. I want to be so into this movie. I think the next thing that we kind of wanted to touch on, touch on was about um, film distribution and your yes. experience working with distribution of those films, either on your own projects or with like Larry Cohen's films. Like, what has your experience been like for distributing your films? That's a that is the toughest part of the business um, for everybody, but especially for indies, because the problem with distribution is getting paid basically so the way it works is is if you have a distributor and they you know they buyers either foreign buyers or domestic buyers buy it they get the money and they'll take their expenses and they'll dole it out to you as slowly as possible and often you have to get you know forensic accounting whatever that is unfortunately in a lot of industries but especially um media that's the big problem so i mean i i i actually have a really interesting perspective because i came in um to the business in the 80s and in the 80s it was the you know the vhs boom the mom and pop video stores and it was this sort of gold rush where there was a need for product because the studios didn't want to put things on videotape because they thought it would eat into their profits. So they were late to the party. The studios didn't start making made for video movies for probably till the end of the eighties. So there was a, there was a golden opportunity for filmmakers, for indie filmmakers to just do anything. You literally could 
make a movie and get it out there on video if it kind of had sound and you know pictures synced together. <laughs> kind of. Mostly. And I always wanted to, you know, unabashedly like genre films. That's the films I grew up with, like cop movies and action adventure and horror and stuff like that. I had no problem. That's really what I wanted to do. And you could definitely sell those. So I started out in, I think Malcolm Gladwell talks about, you know, when opportunity meets 10,000 hours of, 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 you know, experience or practice, you can actually do something. So I, you know, I had been working in the industry. I knew how to make a film, and suddenly there was this opportunity. So we were kind of off to the races. I by I started in like '85. By '89, I had done ten or eleven movies. I mean, we were making two or three movies at a time, and this was this was and this is you know it it, it breaks your heart because that era has so far gone now. But you really could actually do it then, and we were. Especially for like foreign sales, you would go to the foreign markets, which is MIFED in Milan or Cannes and, and, you know, obviously Cannes Film Festival really was the Cannes film market. So you had the, the top tier festival movies and then you had like this crazy carpet bazaar of people selling movies. And you could actually do that. That's amazing. Basically sell it on like a promo. You could do like a three minute promo and they'd be playing in the, the hotel suite and people would buy it from all over the world. So... Those days are really gone. So we were making like three movies a year at some point. And like straight to video. Straight to so video. So like you didn't, you were so well suited because you were into making genre films. Right. With, with shitty rigs galore. Right. Glorious shitty rigs. Right. And like you didn't have a huge ego. Like you needed your film to win, you know, Cannes right. or the, no. the Never you know, had that. Berlin Alley. Like you'd right. fuck it, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Like you were getting to do something really fun that you loved and getting paid. That's yeah. when other people were like scratching their way to the top of the red carpet or whatever. And and that's exactly right. But in the early nineties was kind of the film festival era. So a lot of the mm-hmm. people that started with me, like Hal Hartley and Nick Gomez and whatever, started working on my films and then they were making their more more festival type films, but had learned like kind of street taught on doing my movies and they were going to Sundance and getting picked up and stuff like that. So that was the early nineties was the film festival era. And now it's impossible to get into Sundance, but then if you had a pretty good movie, you could, and then you might get a distribution deal. So that was the early nineties. And then things just got really tougher. You had to put a name in it. So, I mean, I guess the first movie we put a name... We Actually, we used to put... Jake LaMotta used to be in my movies. He was in mm-hmm. Hangman and Mob War. And I just somehow met Jake LaMotta. And he, you know, he played a mob boss or he played an arms dealer. And, you know, he, he could sort of act, but he really didn't read the script. So it no would offense. be like parrot directing. I'd, I'd say the line and he'd say it. And everybody's like, Jake is so great. You know, but he was the first name that we got. And then I think Danny Aiello was in Shock Troop, and we had to pay him $50,000 for a day. But we would shoot, you know, like eight scenes, and he was sort of in the movie. You know, but, and then, you know, as the 90s progressed, it was all foreign sales because the studios were making direct-to-video. So we couldn't really compete with that. Oh, they took your niche. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. they, they saw where the money is. So, you know, yeah. the, the, the majors and the studios would have their... It's almost like the B-movie era where you would have, like, the B-side. 
you know, so they would do direct to video with kind of has been names. Right. Like Little Mermaid 2. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I feel like there are like a million Disney movies that were like this really famous, very successful Disney movie, the sequel, all only on VHS. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So, I mean, and that was, you know, but the beauty of VHS is it was a physical format. Um, DVDs, a physical format. So you could, it, you know, if you sold or you made enough copies and you sold them in blockbusters, you could account for that. But what destroyed everything was streaming. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Snoop Dogg has a great rant, which yeah, you can see. I He's saw like, that. How the fuck do you get paid? Well, yeah, because... Now it's all streaming, and if you put a movie on any sort of streaming uh, uh, service of any kind, it'll get torrented within within ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the people that are paying for stuff on iTunes or whatever, you might get some return, but most people are not because the you know the average eleven year old kid knows how to do that. Mm-hmm. So that really kind of destroyed everything. So I'm speaking from sort of the indie level, but. Um, the crisis that we're going through now, um, and this is, I've been wondering how the economics of, of the film and TV business work for a long time because, you know, it was another gold rush, but on a, on a big network level to, to make content because it's this long tail of content, so many streaming services. But the problem is now there, a lot of them are losing subscribers. The business is in the shitter and they're not sharing with writers and actors and of course the poor crew people are, are at the bottom of the of, you know now there's no nothing going on now and you know if you were working as an electric and now you're off for 4 months that's a that's how do you how do you survive that so what's you know what's the how is the industry going to shake out i don't know but there has to be a reckoning because People have to get paid. I mean, try being in the music business as an indie, you know, band or, or you know, artist. It's impossible. Yeah. The only money you'll make is actually touring and merch. That's yeah. the dirty little secret. Like, you make nothing yeah. from streaming. Yeah. I think it was Snoop Dogg that also said, like, how can you have a billion fucking streams on Spotify Where's and not have million a million dollars? dollars? Yeah. 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 It's like, <laughs> it makes no sense. So it goes to back to my first point. Sorry, like, I'm droning on because oh, I'm yeah. trying no, to process great. this. Yeah. Who gets the money, actual money, is the person that determines whether the artist will get it. Yeah. And is that going to change? I don't know. I, I sure hope so. I'm, al- I'm also any- curious. Sorry. No, 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 I'm also curious about who, I guess, the sort of um, responsibility is on for that kind of oh, thing, right? Question. Because you have the studios that will buy the IP or the film. Right. And then you have the producers that are fundraising the money and then finding the crew to make said movie. Is it on the producer to work into the contract of the crew some sort of point system or percentage for the crew if there's a sale or is it on the studio to pay off that crew in the long run? Like, who does it fall on? Is it both? Like, and you could probably speak on this to someone who's made or fundraised their own movies. Like, who does that responsibility fall on? Well, you answered your own question because it really, it it falls on the producer, but it really depends if if it's a union movie or not. For instance, SAG is very good on residuals. Mm. So, you know, I've worked on movies and I'm, Still getting checks when there's like a new sale or a new territory opens up. Um, you know, the crew unions are 
a little less hardcore, or at least their last um, contract has been less hardcore. But when you're at a indie non-union level mm. and you can barely scrape enough money as a producer to make the movie, I, I don't know if, if there's... I don't know if there's a mechanism where you can do residuals. There should be something like that mm. um, because you may ne never see a dime on that movie again. Mm. So what happens? I mean, there's so many one-time movies. I can't tell you how many I've seen or worked on. You know, the rich kid movie, the, the you know, guy that raised money from his friends. And there, there's never a second movie on that because mm -hmm. the dirty little secret is you're probably not going to make your money back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which goes back to, uh, you know, I'm sort of digressing, but the, the thing I learned early on when I had worked with trauma. And so everybody knows Lloyd Kaufman, who's, mm -hmm. who's the crazy director, but his business partner, Michael hers is, is what I learned a lot of things from. And one of the things he said is don't spend a lot of money. <laughs> don't spend a lot of money. I, you know, learned a lot of things from him, but he was like the hardcore business guy. So, you know, if it's a non-union movie, maybe what you get out of it is experience um, and intangibles, like making your film network, like making friends, making people that'll work on your movie. You know, that's what you get out of it. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that really has happened is like crews are way, way more insistent on, like, manageable days. And that's so easy to do if you just have your shit together in production, in scheduling, if you have an actual AD that can run a set. So, yeah, I, I, the stuff I've been working on, you rarely go over 12 hours a day. I say that because I AD. So He's she was an like, AD. Okay. He was like, yeah. I was like, yes, we're in a tight, shout tight out. ship. Shout out to the ADs. Yeah, shout out I, to the nice ADs. Yeah, no, but Thanks. there are a lot of nice ADs, and mm -hmm. it's all about running a tight ship. Yeah. You know, so I guess the answer is when you're starting out, yeah, work on movies, and it's you're, you're probably not going to see a return, and you're probably going to get, you know, like a really low rate. I mean, I was, I was surprised that, I've been working, producing indie movies. You know, people are working for $200, $300 a day. I was fucking making that in the 80s. But that seems oh. to be the new thing. And I understand, as also my producer had on, is that, you, you know, you just don't have the money. But when you get into stuff that is um, that does have money or is, is produced by networks, yeah, you really do have to have residuals. You have to have a stake in it. You have to have some accountability for that. And mm -hmm. may, you, may, maybe at the end of the day, this strike will, will bring some of that about, but I don't know. So anything that would bring actual accountability, you know, accounting accountability and accountability to the people that made it is probably a good thing. Yeah. So, yeah. and coming from crew, believe me, and yes, I have produced movies, but I have never screwed anybody over. Always, everybody had a good time. Everybody learned something. And any actor that's ever in my movie, I've given them tape. And, you know, just that you're, that's your job. You're, yeah. They become your family. So. so how do you navigate, I guess, if your next movie that you're producing or directing on, what, how do you see it going for, for you? Like, do you still make DVDs for your crew? Do you still try to get it, like, to, to DVD or to Blu-ray or to streaming? Like, what's the process now? It, it's... No, incredibly 
tough now. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly tough for an indie with no name talent in it because as a society, as a culture, we're, it's all about celebrity and it's all mm-hmm. about, you know, just in whatever media you're getting, whether it's social media or it, it, in actual entertainment media, it's all about the, you know, the celebrity. So it's very, very tough. So my last movie, Raining Hell, we got a, a deal with Redbox, which is... This is what I, this is what I was amazing. wanted to talk about. Because <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> it's, a, it's amazingly retro because... You know, if you're living in a city, you, why would you go to a kiosk in your supermarket? But a lot of the country is not served by broadband. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, oh. you know, we have a little local supermarket, the, the chopper, price, price chopper. chopper. The chopper. And a lot of people the go chopper. in there and they, you know, will get the DVD and watch it and bring it back in two days. And it's it's almost like... What? Time Machine to Blockbuster. I'm telling you. Uh. So that was a very important deal to get because it's physical DVD. Media. Yeah. And they're, you know, they made, you know, 40,000 and you get your whatever. And that was, so I'll try for that again. But that's very hard because once again, they're, you know, putting movies with like Eric Robertson in, you know, someone that someone kind of knows still. Yeah. Um, there are other avenues. So, uh, this company, which I love, Vinegar Syndrome, which is based in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, that has been restoring shot-on-film movies that are genres, that are goofy, that are the so bad they're good, that are, you know, whatever. Are They've been um, restoring a lot of my films. So they actually make Blu-rays. And they're completely honest about their accounting, whatever, because they're actually selling a physical product. And, you know, so these movies, there's a real niche of people that love movies, especially the younger set that are discovering all these goofy 80s movies, and they're actually buying Blu-rays. And they also have a deal with um, Alamo Cinemas, so we've had, you know, we've had Alamo screenings and whatever, and it's particularly gratifying to go to those or to just go on Letterboxd and watch, see the comments on Blue Vengeance, because people are like... I never heard of this movie. This movie is fucking great. And it's like, yeah. it's very heartening as someone that sweated that movie out and it never got a, a release. And, you know, so. You're like the Kate Bush of genre films. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, Kate Bush is like back in a big way. And like, there's yeah. like a whole community of people that are like, we love you so much. Like, this is great. Like, decades went by, you know, yeah. with well, like 10 people being like, I love that song, you know, like har- like a small group of hardcore people that were into it. I like, resemble that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, no, but it's, you know, so there's always a niche um, out there. It's just streaming's not it because there's no accountability. And just, just Snoop Dogg couldn't have said it better. Yeah. There's also, I think, a part of it that's like finding your audience, right? Like yeah. a, the the red box thing is like there's a yeah. there's a population that doesn't have broadband so yeah. they get their films from yeah. this kiosk but there's probably other demographics and i think at the end of the day it's like when you make your movie you're looking for your audience that's into your jokes or the dark yeah. humor or the whatever it is you're right. making a movie about and that's probably the hardest part is like finding that market yeah too. yeah I think that's why it's important to keep going to movie theaters too. Like you mentioned Alamo, like Alamo has worked its ass off to like remain relevant and make it like 
it's an experience. I love going there. You yeah. can eat food. It's not bad. <laughs> you have a, a cushy seat. You yeah. reserve your seat. Like yeah. they, they oh, were yeah. like, how do we get butts in these seats? We yeah. have to like do way more. And they show these films and they do all this like little all the little shorts before the movie yeah, and they they're really like, funny yeah. it just reminds me of the rec youth film yeah, festival for sure. yeah, <laughs> like, no. yeah. they definitely you know? yeah they cater to their audience for sure but just yeah. going to the movies in general has been i mean for me in the last year i've been trying to make an effort to go back to right. the theater regularly because yeah. streaming it, streaming has made it so easy to just watch it at home yeah but when I'm watching at home, it's easy for me to just stop watching and be on my phone. And but it's I feel so lazy. Like... And what are you watching on? And it's it's not the immersive experience. And you're not watching it with other people, which mm-hmm. when I grew up, you know, you'd go up to 42nd Street and I saw all these films either at Grindhouses up there or, you know, downtown Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And the audience reaction was such a part of the experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, thinking about it now, that's... How maybe learned how stuff works, what people like to see. I mean, Tarantino, who wrote a great book that just came out this year, talks about that because he literally lived that by going to, you know, grind houses in L.A. when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And and half the experience as a filmmaker is learning, wow, that joke worked. They really love that. Or, you know, and I guess it's intangible, but that's imprints on your brain somehow. So and This is why there are... 10 Fast and the Furious movies. Because you go see them in the theater and they're fucking stupid and ridiculous. And everyone's having a blast. And every, like, we literally, my husband and I go to the Fast and the Furious movies in the theater because we know we're going to have a hilarious time and everyone's in on the joke. Everyone's like, oh my God, that's so stupid. That could never happen. Like, fish hook the bottom of your car to fly over a bridge. (laughs) Like, they're in outer space now. Like, what the fuck? It's hilarious. And it's so much more fun to see with the whole, the I think, whole audience yeah, and everybody, and like hearing the whole audience go family, like all of us. <laughs> family. <laughs> family. Uh, Chris, is there anything that you want to share with us that we haven't touched on? I'm gonna give some props to you guys for for doing this. I think this is once again a niche audience that is hopefully learning something about the business or learning something about other departments. Or just hearing a funny story, or yeah. meeting Corey, or <laughs> me, or whatever. Thank God. I mean, I've, been, I've, I've, I've been into <laughs> shitty rigs for years. Never sent something in, but always thought about it. Yeah. What, what drew you into shitty rigs? I'm curious. Well, you know, I, I'm on. I think I was working on. Uh, horror movie upstate. He was sitting in a magliner cockpit and thought to himself. (laughs) I was working on uh, It Comes at Night and, uh, you know, the crew all younger was like, the shitty rigs are so cool. I'm like, and I literally learned from, you know, someone that just thought it was the coolest thing and that's Mm. years ago now. Gotta be like 2017 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Been a fan since then. And of course, Corey knew you guys because <laughs> she knows everybody. Yeah. I, I, these guys are. Well, these, she didn't. These she, are special. Yeah, she. I was. Well, no, actually, you started Danger Works, basically yeah. connecting the two. I did. Yeah. So John and Mike. John and Mike yeah. started the company Danger Works, and she connected both of them together. Yeah, our first office. Them. Our first office was the Shady Rigs. Your first, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in in the basement of. Where David lived. What? David's really? loft. Yeah, the first Danger Works office was in the basement of David's loft in uh, Williamsburg. 
wow. Yeah, it was. It was the, disgusting. It was the back of the back of another room, and there was a false door that we had to like, and inside of there we had like a black yeah. cabinet where we kept some of our equipment. Yeah, yeah. we had a secret door. It was yeah. like the boiler room of an old building mm-hmm. on Dunham Place in Williamsburg. Nice. Um, one of the the landlord is like an old Hasidic guy who refused to sell. He could have sold that building for $20 million. Right. Like it's insane. And right. he was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and he just didn't want to sell it. And there was a basement and a boiler room and then like pipes everywhere. And then <laughs> we put a piece of plywood up with like uh, tools hanging yeah, from it front, yeah. so and like brooms and stuff. Yeah. So it just looked like a wall, but it was actually a secret door and you would open it and then yeah. you would go into the little yeah. sneaky studio in the back. Yeah. There was like moist. So it was it like always a very moist. Fire, yeah. Moist. <laughs> look me. where you are now, <laughs> and look at you now, kids. It <laughs> was so gross. You of something, Chris. I know just every office I ever had in, in the city, and I had like seven of them, eight of them, and we kept getting kicked out of them as the neighborhoods gentrified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Started at like Seventeenth and Fifth, and then we we're in Tribeca for years, you know. And then like, oh, it went condo. We were in the Atlanta building, which is a one right on Varick, mm. and, and you know, it was like two floors of offices, and the rest were like fish warehouses. And yeah. like, wow. this is like old New York, and we had the total run of that building. Like we just uh. shot on every floor. Yeah. And the, the the old hooky dooky, like fifty bucks could get you to do anything. Like we the old hooky dooky. <laughs> That's going on a Regu- T-shirt. Regular guy <laughs> skills. <laughs> you should print fake shitty rigs money as like a reward, or as like a business card type of thing. But like it's, it just oh, says the old hooky dooky. There's some hooky dooky for you. That's another thing everybody should learn. Is is <laughs> it used to be like twenty, but now it's a fifty, and you've got to yeah. do it in a in a regular guy way. You go, let me buy you some lunch. You never yeah. go. It's got to be something like that, and everybody loves that. But you got to do it the the right, right. way. Like if there's oh, a absolutely. fucking leaf yeah. blower so going here's on, here's what I'm gonna hit you, Chris. I want to know some like, give me like top three regular guy tips right now. Aside from like <laughs> sliding the fifty for the lunch, like what's another like regular guy tip? The old hooky dooky. Yeah. <laughs> the, the old hooky dooky. You know, you have to. You have to. Um, you have to. Ask for something outrageous with a straight face. Okay. <laughs> so we're we're the sixteen story Atlanta building, and, and you know the the ma- building manager super is Bob, and we're like, can we rappel off the building to the street? And I, what is rappel me? I don't want to. We're on like ropes. We're gonna. He goes, you just say it with a straight face. <laughs> like, okay, but who's gonna know? I'm like, nah, we'll do it after you leave. He goes. All right, that's going to be two hooky-dookies. That's going to be a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> He's got two hooky-dookies. Let's Say go. it with a straight face. <laughs> two hooky-dookies. Wait, did you end up doing repelling down the side oh, of it? Oh, God, yeah. Like tons of times. What's the, <laughs> <Just> tons <laughs> of times. <laughs> What's the inflation on a hooky-dookie these days? It might be a hundred. Like, a hundred's a fifty, right? I don't know. The old hooky-dookie, the new one's a hundred. The old right. one was fifty. So we know, use a hooky-dookie. Uh, say something... Outrageous with a straight face. What's another one? Just be respectful of everybody. Just, just That's you know, so true. like whoever, yeah. whoever you're dealing with, the, you know, the location owner or the garbage man that you just want to like. Could you just hang on for like five minutes while we do this take? And, you know, just be respectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're doing a movie, but we're doing like this shot. Could you just shut that weed whacker off? Yeah. Just say it in like a. 
a regular guy way and don't, you know, don't be a pretentious film dude. Yeah. 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 You know? Words and to live by. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, thank you so much thank for you. coming out, yeah. for Appreciate for sharing with us, for listening to us, for discussing with us. And uh, I'm really excited to, you know, see more of your work and I'm um, to do more research on your work because I'm actually not familiar with Larry Cohen's work. So I'm going to go do my homework right now. But okay. thank you for sharing everything and for being a part of uh, the Shitty Rigs podcast today. My pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. Hope to see you in the next one. Yep. All right. Awesome. Yay!